Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show... The fight back against a rising tide. The most obvious thing that some places are doing is building barriers to keep the water out. And the problem with that is that very often these are massive capital projects which take a very long time to design and even longer to build. And how people around the world are rebelling against face recognition technology. Some of these technologies, particularly the ones that you know you can print onto clothes, you know, if you were a protester and you were keen to avoid being identified, maybe it's a method to look at. But first, scientists have announced that they are one step closer to finding a cure for Ebola. The viral disease is deadly. In fact, two-thirds of those who become infected die from the illness. And in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the latest outbreak has killed nearly 2,000 people. But now two new treatments are offering hope, and tests in the country have proven that they boost survival rates up to 90%. Slavea Chankova is the Economist healthcare correspondent, and she joins me now. Slavea, what are the two treatments and how do they work? They're both based on antibodies, which our immune system makes in response to infection. The first of those treatments um, is actually a cocktail of three antibodies. It's made by Regeneron, an American biotechnology firm. And the second treatment uh, was developed at the National Institutes of Health in America, And it is uh, just one antibody which was isolated uh, from a patient, a survivor of Ebola, uh, from an epidemic um, that was in the DRC in 1995. And that person was still making antibodies 11 years afterwards. Okay, that's very interesting. So first, let's stop and look at what antibodies are. So antibodies are special protein molecules, which our immune system makes in response to infection. So the way they work is they either lock onto specific parts of invading pathogens like the Ebola virus and inactivate them. So they just block their ability to infect our cells. Or in some cases, antibodies actually uh, go after our cells, which are already infected by Uh, pathogens, because oftentimes uh, the pathogen will hijack a human cell and turn it into a factory for itself. Now, we're told that these treatments are very effective, up to 90% survival rate. But how effective are they in practice? So with the first one, the one that is a combination of three antibodies, uh, 29% of people uh, who received that drug died and, you know, compared to up to 90% uh, who don't receive any drugs. However, 
For people uh, who sought treatment very early on, so they had a very low uh, viral load, um, only 6% died. So that's a pretty high success rate, um, more, more than 90%. For the second drug, which is uh, based on just one antibody, um, 34% of Ebola patients died and only 11% among those who got treatment early on. So how would a government official or a healthcare official adjudicate between which drug to use? So for for the time being, uh, the number of people treated with these drugs is still too small. So statistically speaking, their success rate is indistinguishable. And that's why uh, what's going to happen now is both of these drugs will be given uh, to people who have Ebola in the current outbreak, and then um, their effectiveness will be compared. So when you have more people who take them, you have the larger sample, and then you'll be able to make a better call on which of them works better. So does this mean that the treatments will be rolled out to the public? So for now, they're not uh, officially approved by any drug regulator, but they're used under a special designation um, because it's an emergency. Both of these drugs will be given to Ebola patients in the current outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And will this change the way that people are treated? Yes, of course. I mean, uh, up to now, there was no effective cure for Ebola, so uh, which is what actually uh, creates several problems. So not only people die, but also when they get sick, they don't go to those uh, treatment centers where they are isolated from others, which means that they stay home longer, they infect others, um, and they're reluctant to go to the treatment centers because they see many people go in and uh, live in coffins. And now that there is a highly effective cure for them, more of them will be inclined to actually go in uh, as soon as they have signs of Ebola infection. Do we have any sense of how long it will take to make these drugs and then deliver them? I think they they make them uh, pretty quickly. There is already a stockpile and uh, there are plans to produce more of both of these drugs. So uh, at this point, there are no signs of shortage of the drugs. Slavea, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. And if you want to learn more about this issue, you can read our recent coverage in this week's edition of The Economist. And if you like our journalism, subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. But first, the sea levels are rising across the globe. They threaten to change the face of Earth's 1.6 million kilometers of coastline. And that could spell disaster. Only 44 members of the United Nations' 193 members are landlocked, and two-thirds of the world's cities are exposed to the ocean. So how are governments preparing to deal with the threat of a rising tide? Jan Petrosky is The Economist business editor, and he's been exploring the fight with the floods. Hello, Jan. Hello, Ken. Jan, we've heard for years about the threat of a rising sea level. What is actually causing it to rise? Well, there are basically three reasons why the sea levels around the world are rising. The first is basically physics, and that is that when you heat water, it expands. Um, As that water expands, it rises. What are the other two reasons? So the other reason is you have a lot of mountain glaciers, and as they melt, that water eventually makes it down to the sea. And uh, finally, you have ice caps. And as these melt, they too add to the stock of water on Earth. And so how much of a rise are we talking? And what are the consequences of that? Since the 1880s, global mean sea level 
so averaged across the entire ocean, has risen by about 20 centimeters, which doesn't necessarily sound like a lot, but it can actually have pretty adverse consequences in particular places because some are much more exposed than others. How high levels will rise by the end of the century is disputed, but conservative estimates put it at about half a meter to 60 centimeters if some effort is made to cut carbon emissions. And so although one of the big problems is global warming, even if we were to find a way to tackle that overnight, would that help stop the sea level from rising? Uh, No, and, and this is where the physics comes in. It takes a while for water to mix and expand when it is heated. So actually, when you look at the different mitigation scenarios, the different scenarios of how quickly the world will or won't tackle its carbon addiction and and cut fossil fuel emissions, by 2100, the difference between the scenarios when it comes to sea level rise are not dramatic. But the real damage and the real diversion uh, between these different scenarios, sort of the business as usual scenario maybe, and more ambitious scenarios of tackling uh, global warming will only really become apparent in the 22nd, 23rd centuries. Okay. So when we talk about this sort of disaster becoming apparent, what are we expecting? How bad is it going to be? And tell us maybe in the next 50 years, so within people's lifetimes. So some places, just because of certain uh, quirks of geography and, and physics, are more exposed than others. So for instance, some of the most exposed places are New York is, is certainly among them. Um, you have some places, low-lying regions of, uh, of the Indian subcontinent, parts of the Chinese coast. Uh, for a variety of reasons, they are more exposed than, than average. Exposed to what? I mean, if we're only talking about a few centimeters rising or maybe half a meter in your larger extreme version, does that mean that all of lower Manhattan will be swamped, that buildings will crumble, that beachfront property will now be in Ohio? That's not quite right. But uh, what will happen is that, for instance, when you expect a one in 100 year flood, that will become much more common. So places will not be permanently flooded, but they may be persistently flooded. Okay. So what are places doing to combat this problem? The most obvious thing that some places are doing is building barriers to keep the water out. And the problem with that is that very often these are massive capital projects which take a very long time to design and even longer to build. And by the time that they are actually erected, the science might have changed and it might turn out that they're next to useless. So some attempts are being made to try and limit the impact that the water can have on coastal cities. But are governments really taking this threat seriously enough? The short answer is probably no. There's some places in the world which are extremely concerned, the low-lying islands in the Pacific. Some of their politicians have likened global warming and emitting more fossil fuels to genocide. Um, Kiribati, which is a a particularly low-lying atoll nation, has actually bought some land in Fiji, which it might use either for agriculture or, if push comes to shove, actually to relocate some of its inhabitants. Um, You have places which have long contended with the sea, which are typically low-lying places, Bangladesh in the the developing world, and most prominently in the rich world, the Netherlands, uh, which has tens of thousands of installations and miles of dikes, barriers, sluices, and, and other engineering hardware, as well as centuries' worth of software in the sense of governance structures, uh, which enable the Dutch to deal with high tides and, and storm surges to which they are particularly vulnerable. So there are some places which are, which are treating this seriously, but many places which have not hitherto had to contend with such issues or were less exposed until now 
partly because of their topography and partly because, for instance, they weren't as developed. A lot of the world's great cities are coastal cities and they attract more capital and more people. So you're sort of concentrating the risk in some of these very vulnerable places. And what about businesses? Have they been responding There is a problem with businesses. So some which are very directly affected, especially once they have been affected, they will often start taking things seriously. The problem is for those businesses which can expect to be affected but have not yet been in particular places. And unfortunately, they have absolutely no incentive to do anything about it or even to look for their vulnerabilities. And the reason is that if they find some, they need to disclose them. And if they disclose them um, and nobody else does, uh, the market punishes them for this uh, foresight rather than rewarding it. And as a result, there is very little incentive for businesses to actually get their act together and, and try and understand what risks they're facing. Jan, that's very depressing, but thank you for taking the time to share it with us. Thank you, Ken. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. And finally... Do you ever get the feeling that you are being watched? Well, maybe you are. Improvements in face recognition technology mean it is getting better at identifying who we are. But should we be worried? Cities like San Francisco have banned the technology. And in Hong Kong at the moment, protesters are using clever techniques to avoid being identified. This week, it was revealed that in King's Cross in London... Face recognition technology was being used without the public's knowledge. Tim Cross is the Economist technology editor, and he joins me now in the studio to discuss this. Hello, Tim. Hi, Ken. Tim, facial recognition has gone from being an aspiration to being in the here and now. How does the technology work, and is the deception effective? The basic thing that powers facial recognition, it's a form of AI. And, of course, um, we've seen a lot of progress in AI, particularly in machine learning in the last few years. And like you said, you know, facial recognition, computerized facial recognition is not a new idea, but it's been sort of turbocharged by all the progress we've seen in machine learning. So the accuracy has gone way up. Uh, It's become sort of cheaper and easier to deploy it. So it's sort of spreading everywhere. I mean, Facebook was one one sort of early pioneer, every time you upload uh, a photo, it tries to figure out who's in the photo. It looks at their faces and says, oh, this is Ken, this is Tim. You know, here they are drinking in a shady establishment or something. And it it sort of adds that to its social graph, to the huge database that it keeps about everything you do. Um, But it's spread since then. So uh, there are smartphones you can unlock with your face. Um, You've got banks that use it to verify sort of big transactions. People are experimenting with advertising billboards that sort of watch you looking at them and try and figure out your facial expressions and figure out how you're reacting. Um, And and they're used in a lot of sort of security applications as well. So the Department of Homeland Security in the US wants facial recognition to be scrutinizing 97% of all the outbound airline passengers from the US in the next four years. China uses it in this vast police state that it's built in Xinjiang. 
uh, and at least three British police forces have been using it essentially as a sort of tool of you know, mass street-level surveillance, just putting these cameras on the streets and looking for criminals. So the technology is now everywhere, but there's a lot of people who are trying to dupe the systems because they don't want to be seen. Yeah, a, a lot of people find this sort of creepy or worry that it sort of infringes on your, your civil liberties. And you've seen some regulatory moves to try and curb this. So San Francisco said, you know, no, uh, the city couldn't use the technology. It passed that ordinance a few months ago. But, you know, this is the kind of thing that developed slowly. And for some people who don't like how fast this is spreading, uh, yeah, they've been working on ways to try and subvert the system so that even if the camera sees you, it doesn't recognize your face or maybe even it recognizes you as somebody who you aren't. So what are the techniques that people use to subvert the technology? The basic idea is that because facial recognition is powered by machine learning, you've got these computers that have taught themselves to recognize faces by seeing zillions and zillions of examples. And because they've taught themselves, they've come up with sort of techniques that are different to how human vision works. So the way a computer sees the world is not at all the way that a human sees the world. And a lot of these efforts to subvert it try and kind of capitalize on that fact. And they either present it with things that, you know, don't look anything like faces to humans, but really, really do to computers. So they try and, you know, divert their attention elsewhere. Um, or they try and mask existing faces by presenting them in odd ways that the computers aren't used to or haven't seen before. So one example that's had quite a lot of press is this style of makeup called CV Dazzle, which an American researcher called Adam Harvey sort of pioneered about 10 years ago. And if you Google it, you can see, uh, see pictures because it's hard to describe in words. But basically, it's very, very bold style of makeup. You've got these sort of weird gradations, asymmetrical hairstyles. You kind of cover up parts of the face and not other parts. And you basically attack the algorithm's assumptions about what a human face looks like. So if I showed you someone wearing this makeup, it's no problem for you to realize that, hey, this is just a sort of kind of eccentric looking human. Um, for computers, or at least for the specific algorithm that it was designed to attack, uh, they struggle to recognize it as a face at all. So you can you know, make yourself up like this, walk around, and if that's the particular facial recognition system that's in use, it won't spot you. But you call attention to yourself because other humans will be staring at you thinking, what is this weird person doing? Right, exactly. You look like you've just sort of stepped out of the set of a cyberpunk film. There are subtler ways to do it. So um, Adam Harvey's sort of second project was this thing called Hyperface, and the idea there is you take these patterns and they're sort of blocky and abstract. And, and if you're told, you can see, okay, they look vaguely like a face. So they've got sort of two dark spots roughly where the eyes should be and a kind of line thing for a mouth. They're actually carefully chosen. They're sort of catnip for face recognition algorithms, right? They really activate them strongly. The computers go, ooh, ooh, a face and focus in on it. And because you can print these patterns on something like a scarf, you can print lots of them, you end up uh, wearing something that looks like it's got dozens of really sort of strong, really distinctive faces all over it, and that lowers the likelihood that your actual face will be the one detected. And so what about techniques that are more adversarial? You can get even more cunning than that. There was a paper produced by a group of mostly Chinese researchers that involved a baseball cap with tiny little LEDs sewn into it that emit infrared light. And what's interesting about that is a lot of the cameras that are used in facial recognition systems, or really just a lot of digital cameras, are sensitive to bits of the infrared spectrum, and humans aren't. So some facial recognition algorithms make use of this. Like, you know, it's a good way to see through things like makeup is to look in the infrared spectrum, but you can also use it to attack it. So the researchers basically have these LEDs shining backwards onto your own face. They create little dots of LED light, which you can't see, so it doesn't bother you. But you can either use it to just sort of dazzle the cameras so your face is kind of hard to even see, or you can get a bit more clever. And if you 
train one of your own algorithms to analyze your face and somebody else's in the manner that the algorithm you're trying to attack does. You can then manipulate the infrared light so that you look like somebody else. So in the paper, they were attacking a particular facial recognition system called FaceNet, which was developed by Google. And they reckon that about 70% of the time, they could get one of their colleagues to be classified as Moby, you know, the American singer-songwriter who was popular in the 90s. So what are the protesters in Hong Kong using to avoid detection? So in a way, they've gone... um, I hesitate to call lasers low-tech, but they certainly aren't doing any of this stuff yet. Most of what we've seen is laser pointers, like the kind you use for presentations, uh, and just shining them at cameras to dazzle them. But some of these technologies, particularly the ones that you you can print onto clothes and things like that, if you were a protester and you were keen to avoid being identified, maybe it's it's a method to look at. How does that work by using a laser pointer to sort of befuddle the cameras? You just literally overwhelm it with light. You white it out. You, it can't see anything. It's like you know, it's like taking your digital camera and pointing it at the sun. You just aren't going to get any kind of picture out of it. So taken together, it seems like there's a cat and mouse game being played between the people who are deploying the technology and those that want to resist it. Who's going to win, Tim? Well, that's a really interesting open question. So this this whole idea of adversarial machine learning, as they call it, where you sort of pitch one algorithm against another and try and you know use computers to come up with patterns to fool other computers, it's a it's a really sort of active area of research. And the answer is at the moment we don't know. Um, and if you want to speculate wildly, you could point to nature and say there are species out there that have been fighting sort of camouflage and detection wars with their predators for millions and millions of years without you know, any one side emerging as a clear winner. So you know, it may be that no side will win and that the sort of cat and mouse game will, will carry on. That's fascinating. Tim, thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference. I'm Kenneth Kukie, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.